Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I'm so excited to welcome today's guest, Samantha Tweedy, a mission-driven nonprofit leader and racial and social justice advocate. Samantha is the inaugural president of the Black Economic Alliance Foundation, the nation's leading organization working with black business leaders to build generational wealth for the black community. Immediately prior to this, she served as the chief partnerships and impact officer of Robinhood, New York City's largest anti-poverty organization. Before leading this critically necessary charge for economic and racial justice, Samantha was a public education innovator, and that'll richly inform our conversation today. She was the chief advancement officer and senior director for external impact for Uncommon Schools, a nonprofit organization that starts and manages outstanding urban charter public schools. She also founded and co-directed the Brooklyn-based award-winning elementary school Excellence Girls and was the head of school for Excellence Boys, a college prep all-boys elementary and middle school. She began her career after graduating from Duke University and Yale Law School as a very promising young associate at a top New York City law firm. Samantha and her husband are mom and dad to their daughter Stokely, who's six, and their son Evers, who is three and a half. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Samantha. (laughs) It is so good to be here, Carol. I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Yay. I am so happy to have you here to talk about how your work and your life have helped shape your parenting philosophies. I'm also excited to talk to you as the mom of two young children. As many of our listeners are in your shoes, raising little ones, and we all need all the conversations, tips, and advice we can get to get our brown babies growing and developing. So let's get started. I like to start parenting conversations by talking about how you were parented. You said in a recent conversation with DeRay McKesson on his podcast, Pod Save the People, I come from this line of educators, lawyers, social workers, artists who have been unrelenting in the dedication of their talent, their voice, and their work to further the liberation of Black people. It's an amazing quote. And I'm going to give you one more quote before we get started. In an earlier conversation with me about parenting philosophies, you said, I'm parenting differently than my parents with a lot of the same values. So I so love those two quotes <laughs> that I want to spend some time exploring both of them with you. But I want to start with the, your, the, your history, your legacy, this long line of, of mission-driven, civil rights-focused people. Can you... Break this down for us. Uh, can you start to tell me about your grandparents and, and how they started this legacy? Absolutely. And Carol, you are good at this because you have captured me in a nutshell with just two people. <laughs> uh, so I do. I come from this line, you know, starting with my grandfather who grew up in Springfield, Illinois, mm-hmm. and was leading sit-ins at the local Walgreens counter when he was in his late teens and early 20s. And this was mm. in the 1940s, you know, mm. decades before the storied sit-ins of the civil rights movement. He went on to fight in World War II and he carried the double V in his pocket into battle, you know, victory Mm -hmm. abroad and Mm -hmm. victory against racism at home. Mm. Uh, He ended up in Philadelphia, worked in many, many civil rights organizations, was on the committee that brought Martin Luther King to Philadelphia. And this was every ounce of who he brought and what he brought into his work for his entirety of his life. My grandmother 
after graduating from high school at 16 mm -hmm. and working her way through college, went on to a career at the Urban League and then off to law school when she was 44. Wow. At a time when women going to law school, women at that age going to law school was unheard <laughs> of after she'd raised five kids. And then mm. she spent her legal career litigating on behalf of uh, students with special needs. Mm. One of her cases went off to the Supreme Court. And since then, aunties, uncles, cousins, right? Mm -hmm. Artists, activists, uh, social workers, you know, all in it committed to liberation of black folks. And if you ask my mom, and this will get, this will take me to the second part of your question, you know, mm -hmm. well, how did that end up driving Samantha and her work, which she would always say is osmosis, that it just, you know, it seeped into me. And I love that analogy because it's just so right on, you know, it was in the water, it was in the air, it was in everything we did, but you know where it wasn't all that often around the dinner table. Hmm. You know, we were having lots of conversations around the dinner table, but they largely weren't rooted there. They mm -hmm. were rooted in education. You know, one of the deep values that I share with my parents, they were rooted in the books that we were reading. Mm -hmm. Again, one mm -hmm. of the great values that I share with my parents, just ongoing learning, reading, loving to read, you know, reading, not just to learn. They were focused on arts and music and dance. You know, another mm. one of the huge values that, that my husband and I share with my parents, but less explicitly around identity, racial identity, you know, who, what it looked like to show up in this space and in this fight uh, around racial justice. And so osmosis really was it. So do you think that was because there was this presumption that since it was all around you, it was in your history, and, and both your parents were um, well-educated and really focused on being the best examples of Black people they possibly could be. Do you think they just thought, Oh, we've got this. This we don't have to talk about this because it's all around. Or, or, or do you think it was consciously a decision to not bring sort of the strife and and make no mistake, it was strife. It wasn't sort of like I mean, we shall overcome. Meant we had a lot to overcome. <laughs> Maybe they didn't want to bring it to the table. What What do you think? I think that is a lot of it, and I think that was true about my parenting, my parents' parenting style overall. That mm -hmm. the expectations were set. They were in the air. They were in the water. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to go to college. You're going to do incredibly well at school every minute <laughs> and every year of your life, right? You two are going to love reading. You two are going to read voraciously. You know, it was mm -hmm. wonderful because my mom loves uh, nonfiction. And my dad is uh, a deep reader of, or excuse me, fiction. And my dad's a deep reader of nonfiction, you know, stacks on his bedside table. And the expectation was that I was going to love both, right? Mm. And I do think that it was the same. It was this understanding that, what was put before us was what was going to be and mm -hmm. that we were going to get there and we were going to figure it out on our own. And that does look quite different than the way that my husband and I are parenting. We deeply believe in the way that we engage with our kids is we're going to tell them what those expectations are and we're going to keep telling them, we're going to keep telling them <laughs> and we're going to show them and we're talking about it a different way. And I think a lot of that really does come from our experiences as educators and how mm -hmm. we're now bringing that into the mix around mm -hmm. what's mm -hmm. creating our parenting style. So, so give me an example. I mean, your, your little ones are pretty little. So at six and three and a half, they're, they may well be at the dinner table with you, but the odds are they aren't sharing a lot of how they feel at this point. <laughs> uh, certainly, certainly about bigger issues. I'm sure they talk about how they feel all the time, but, but, but give me a sense. So let's fast forward into the future yeah. and they are, uh, what they are 16 <laughs> and 13 or they're, you know, 
what kind of conversations do you envision having around the table that you don't think you would have had mm-hmm. when you were growing yeah. up? It's a good question. And you made me laugh long and hard there saying that they don't bring their opinions to the dinner table. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, no, you know, <laughs> I had to clean that <laughs> up. Like, That's all they do, right? <laughs> um, so, so let me share an example now and then fast forward mm-hmm. um, because even though they are young, we do talk with them now about a lot of explicit conversations around things that we think will matter to their identity development and how they show up in the world. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you ask Stokely or Evers who they're named after, right, mm-hmm. which is Stokely Carmichael and Megger Evers, what they'll tell you, and they've been able to say, you know, for years is freedom fighters, because we don't need to get into the details yet right? Mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. those lives and those livelihoods and what they meant and the strife and the struggle, as you said. What we do want them to know is that they are intentionally expected to be freedom fighters. And what that looks like, right, can take all sorts of shapes and forms. And so, for example, you know, we have them watching Naomi Osaka, right? But we're mm-hmm. talking about Naomi Osaka as a tennis player and a freedom fighter of her own kind. And mm-hmm. so those are the kind of conversations that we have early and often. Mm. Fast forward a decade, I can't think of two children who ask more questions than mine. And so Mm -hmm. I imagine we will be in conversations that are not that far (laughs) off from the conversations that you and I are having, you know, uh, (laughs) help me. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, I think what looks different and what we are incredibly intentional about is we want to make sure that we've given them the tools to analyze the world as they find it. And sadly, that world is not going to be much better for them, you know, than it was Mm -hmm. for us coming up. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, for them to be able to understand, for example, that the history of black people in this country starts before slavery, right? Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. the, that the understanding that they are, engaging in a world where, you know, there are a number of folks who have made incredibly horrific and intentional decisions around Black folks, around women, and what they can and can't do, and that they're showing up to that world equipped not to sort of push it to the side or to ignore it, or just to feel like the weight is on their shoulders is really important to us. Yeah, no, that is great. I I have to laugh because, um, and this leads to the next question I want to ask about, because I, I love the intentionality of it. And, and I appreciate the importance of talking about things. The, the question I have though, is how prepared are you to have um, teenagers, for example, who see the world very differently than <laughs> the, the one that you have very painstakingly presented to them? I have three children and they have three very distinct approaches and perspectives. And, and, and I can safely say, because they're all in their twenties, um, rooted in in some good stuff that I hope that I've had something to do with, but they veer in different directions. And so have you thought about their ability to take this in and maybe come out in a different direction than you had intended? I mean, the, the, the open-mindedness of, <laughs> of, of them being sort of landing, taking the same set of information, just coming out any differently. Yes. So I'm fundamentally unprepared to have teenagers. <laughs> We're just going to put that out there and I'll okay. be listening to this podcast you know, every week <laughs> until I get there. And I say that jokingly, but my, you know, my honest truth is there is that my daughter in particular, she is 99% me. Mm-hmm. And that is beautiful at times. That is hard <laughs> at times. And I can mm-hmm. only imagine how hard that's going to be during the teenage years. Mm-hmm. And I think my, my answer to your question, Carol, is that I 
absolutely anticipate hope and dream that where they land is different than I could have ever started. Mm-hmm. But I also know that there are some directions they could take that would feel fundamentally problematic to me if they mm-hmm. were outside of our values. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm ready to challenge those. Mm-hmm. And I say mm-hmm. that as a parent who hasn't had to do it yet. And I know how often you lose and I know you have to do it with tact. And I know it creates difficult conversations. And sometimes those you know span the course of decades. But I do see it as part of my job and my and my husband husband's job you know, to lean in on the places that are really values laden mm-hmm. and to have the hard conversations with our kids when it feels like that's the part where mm-hmm. they might not be leaning into or following up on. Yeah, no, that that is a really, that's a good answer, very thoughtful one. And I will say as one who's sort of much further down the road, I think you're doing exactly the right thing in the sense that you pour all that you can into them when they are very young. And if you can intentionally give them your perspective without insisting that it be theirs as well. Mm-hmm. And the kind of parenting that I know you're doing sort of engages that concept. I mean, because you, one has to be open-minded. I mean, you have a, you have a, a professional history with education, all you have, you are open-minded, but, but I do think that there, there are seeds to be sown early days that mm-hmm. regardless of what the plant that looks like <laughs> comes out of them, it, they're rooted in some common values. I mean, I, without putting any of my children on blast, I will say that they all had a very different upbringing than I did. I lived in an all-Black neighborhood. I went to all-Black schools until I got to high school. And I just knew a community that was very different than their community. And so imagine my surprise when here I'm thinking, oh, we're, we have this Black stuff down because we're all Black. I mean, you know, our family's Black, you know, and their multicultural group of friends and their perspectives that our multicultural friend group influenced came sort of into the conversations. And I must say, I confess that at times I worried, had we not done enough to mm. make sure that they understood their identity? And I mean, that's a question one can never answer because, you know, your children will continue to do whatever they want to do. But I will say that just recently when one of my children created an organization to fight racism. I was so proud of him, in part because I had absolutely nothing to do with the genesis Mm -hmm. of that or the foundation of that or the growth of that. And it's really grown tremendously and impressively. But I was really happy to see that the presumptions I made along the way about what he or his siblings were thinking about sort of you could come to a place where you need to be without following the exact path that I was plotting for them. So I say that to you and to, to everyone who sort of is focused on this, you know, most of our children are growing up, Every all of our children are growing up very differently. We grew up, even if it's in the very same house, the world is different. Our lives are different. Their access to the world is different. And so they're going to get a lot more influences than we did <laughs> growing up. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one that my husband and I have been wrestling with on this, Carol, which is mm-hmm. I went to a private school for middle school mm-hmm. and then was deciding whether to stay there for high school or to go to Stuyvesant you know, public mm-hmm. school in, mm-hmm. in New York. And my parents told me that one of the top reasons that I was not staying at that school and was going to Stuyvesant was because I had come home too often during my three years there asking for a country house <laughs> and saying, why don't we have a country house? Right. So fast forward right. now through a series of, you know, actually sad family events, but that have had this beautiful silver lining. Uh, my parents and my kids and we now are have access to you know a house in the Hamptons mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. my kids can go to pretty much as often as they want to but so mm-hmm. now I hear from their teachers you know Evers is sitting in his 
feeling semicircle in preschool. And when they ask him how he's feeling, he's saying, excited because I'm going to the Hamptons. <laughs> My daughter, literally on her report card, Carol, where they were writing the comments, it says that she wrote this incredible story where she was using text features and dialogue about how much fun they had in the Hamptons last weekend. <laughs> and so we're sitting there, right? And it's when it all comes, as you're saying, oh, into, uh, yeah. right? into tension, <laughs> right? And you just <laughs> have to ask yourself, you know, how do we, again, prepare our kids to navigate so much of understanding what they have and what they don't have, what they have that we didn't have or did have, right? And mm -hmm. why and what it all means. At the end of the day, and I didn't say this one, so I should, you know, I think what my parents certainly instilled in us and how they parented us. So at the end of the line, at the end of the day, it's just about being a good person. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to help your neighbors. You know, you're going to give what you can. I mean, my mom is the person who, if she realized that somebody had given her $20, of change instead of 10, you know, she would go back half an hour mm -hmm. to the store to return mm -hmm. the $20. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I think is, you know, if, if I've done anything, if I could carry that through to my kids, right, that, mm -hmm. then I've done a good job. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, every parent that puts their child in a private school setting where wealth is as aspirational as academics, wherever you are, private schools cost a lot of money and a lot mm -hmm. of wealthy people tend to go there. You have to deal with this issue of trying to keep your children grounded in your own values, whatever they may be when they're encountering those. And, and I can only think to what my father used to say, and this will show you how old this phrase was, but whenever I would get very excited about either our opportunity to do something or seeing that someone else was doing something very fancy, he would say, that and 50 cents will get you on the subway. Mm. And so <laughs> I can always remember like, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I, it was, you know, it, it was his way of saying, you know, fine, but don't mm -hmm. get too caught up in what people have or what their ability to do it. You know, it's sort of, everybody has mm -hmm. to sort of, it's the same. There, there are great equalizers and just remember that, that that's the most important thing. So it's a challenge. And even if you're not facing these specific challenges, just the concept of, sending your kids into a world that is going to be vastly different than the one that you That's are right. comfortable with mm. is, is something that we as parents all have to face and kind of curb our own reactions as if it were we in the yes. space. That's right. <laughs> which is, which is hard to do instinctively. But That's right. And what I would say is I think, you know, the other thing is sometimes you get surprised by how the exposure to the other environment actually helps with what Absolutely. you're doing at home or gets over something you haven't figured out how to accomplish or just solidifies it for your kids. You know, so mm -hmm. here I am talking about all this work we've done, you know, in my kids' short number of years around, you know, who are you? Where do you come from? You know, mm -hmm. what are your aspirations, freedom fighters, et cetera. But I haven't been able to tell with my six-year-old really whether that was resonating, you know, my biggest fear is that she's going to start rolling her eyes every time I start talking about this, right? Sort of be over being black by the time she's seven, right? But so, so she, um, this, her school, uh, this year, uh, was part of the community of schools across this country now that celebrates Black Lives Matter School Week of Action. And it's a lengthy name, but she corrected me every time when I didn't say every single word. So I said that Black Lives Matter School Week of Action. And her school, this is my perspective, you know, they didn't say that this is what they were intentionally trying to do, but they really leaned into making the black students stars. They didn't hmm. seem to worry at all about what a lot of schools and a lot of environments worry about, right? Is it actually sort of overly calling out one group of students or another to lean in too much or too little? They had 
you know, in their community meeting, which they do on Zoom, they literally showed photographs of every mm. Black student, photographs of families. They had, you know, pictures that were all around their walls of the whole school. Every student had to participate, right, in designing them and creating them, et cetera. And one, just kudos, right? And shout out, you know, mm -hmm. you, sometimes you're just happy when you feel like you're picked a right. good school for your kid, right? <laughs> but even more so, she came home and after that week would talk about things completely differently. So she started saying, you know, that was the first black girl who X, Y, and Z, right? Mm. Or she would say, you know, I'm black, her little best friend, you know, my, my best friend is white. We're different and using all the vocabulary, right? And all the thinking I knew that she had, but she mm -hmm. actually never brought it out to us until mm -hmm. this external environment leaned in a certain way that seems to have really resonated with her. Mm -hmm. She it was mm -hmm. so funny. My son was getting angry because we were reading all these stories that she had about, you know, black women, black girls. And he's like, there's not enough boys in this book. And she literally said, and I said, oh, we didn't mean that ever is right. We'll, we'll read, you know, more books with boys. She said, no, that's on purpose. She said, because during Black Lives Matter, Matter, school week of action, we're focusing on people who the world has been not right with, and that's black people and women. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, right? And that was how she had interpreted it. And so mm -hmm. I did have this moment of recognizing that sometimes, you know, letting go of your kid and putting them into an environment where you're not sure what will come back mm -hmm. uh, actually does reinforce, right? Or creates the opportunity for the kids to lean into what you've been trying to do. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So I want to go back a little bit into your past and then bring it back to the present. So I know that you were at Stuyvesant, which was a, you tested into the school, the school for very gifted students. And so you had a focus on your academics, but you were also a dancer. Mm -hmm. If you could tell the story about the, when sort of the two worlds collided in yeah. terms of trying to, I mean, you were a serious dancer and you were a serious academician. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in hearing about how it kind of clashed yes. at school. So one of the, you know, the best things my mom ever did for me was put me in dance classes at three. Mm -hmm. And my mom actually had not been a dancer her whole life. But when she turned 30, which now sounds, you know, so different than it did when, when, when I was so young. And she was saying to me, you know, it wasn't until I turned 30. I'm like, uh, but, you know, for back then, right, she actually mm -hmm. started dancing. And, mm -hmm. she, and she loved it. And so I started dancing when I was three. And by the time I was in high school, I was dancing at the Alvin Ailey School mm -hmm. and dancing five days a week, you know, for hours and hours and hours. And as you said, you know, Stuyvesant is an incredibly rigorous environment. It actually was probably the most rigorous in terms of the numbers of sort of hours and mental energy. I was pulling all nighters, right, mm. in high school, like in ways mm -hmm. that I didn't have to do later. Probably good preparation for life, but intense. <laughs> and so I went to my guidance counselor. Uh, and Stuyvesant is a very, very big school. I had an ID number, 1643, that I will remember for the rest of my life. She looks in the computer. I, she, I explained to her my problem. She never met me before. I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm struggling with the balance, right? It's a lot. And I want to come talk to you. I'm sorry, you can say, you, there was a gym class. You you have a exactly. specific request. So, mm -hmm. so I said, I'm, I'm struggling with a lot. You know, this is hard to balance. And I was at the time signed up for a zero period gym, which was an 8 a.m., gym class. And we literally did nothing. I mean, Stuyvesant's known for a lot of things. It's athletics is not one of them, right? So we would, we would basically sit on the bleachers. And I said, can I be excused from this gym class you know, in the way that the football team, which never won a game, was excused from, uh, from zero period gym because of their athletics. So she listens. She pulls up my record. 
she looks at my uh, GPA, which was quite strong. And she says, you don't have a problem. You're good to go. And one, the idea that an educator, that somebody who's working with students, you know, when a student comes proactively and expresses something that they need, you know, for their own health and balance, sort of is that quickly dismissed? You know, we could spend <laughs> hours on that as well. But, uh, but for, our, for our purposes, you know, it really signaled to me that I had to do one or the other mm. and that it was either going to be this academic pursuit, you know, of a career that I saw just based on sort of who was in my world as more um, traditional and really where I was supposed to be, you know, or that I would be able to lean even more into dance. Mm -hmm. And it is my biggest regret, Carol, quitting. Uh, I kept going at it. Mm -hmm. I kept going at it a little bit, you know, in the beginning of college, but I held on to this feeling that there was no way for me to be both. And what I couldn't see was a world in which I wasn't you know, doing school, doing, you know, graduate school of some sort, Mm -hmm. doing career that was really focused on being, you know, someone who had excelled in school that I couldn't see getting rid of. So I guess that was a bit primary for me. Uh, But it's my biggest regret uh, for two reasons. One is because I actually think that we are, you know, better and more whole and more human when we are bringing in those multiple areas, you know, of, of what we care about. And so just for me being somebody who is, you know, happy and at peace and feels completely fulfilled. But I also regret it because I think about the kind of model that I could have been, you know, now for my kids, but even before for all of my students, you know, for years and years is sort of this powerful, you know, person mm-hmm. who was leading the charge, right? Um, sort of coming out of that schooling and somebody who had this incredible, you know, career wherever it would have brought me as a dancer. So I look mm. back on that and and I do wish it had all gone differently. Yeah. And I hear you on the regret. I mean, I, I, first I thought that you regret that you didn't become a professional dancer, but, but you're saying that you regret you just didn't keep with it. Do both. And the worst part of that story, and you were alluding to it, is I'm sure unwittingly, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, him or her, the the guidance counselor, whoever you spoke with, I Mm -hmm. will give them the benefit of the doubt that they did not wake up that morning with the intention of squashing Mm -mm. a kid's dream. (laughs) But, (laughs) But they sowed the seeds of doubt and sapped the confidence level. I mean, you were struggling and the answer was, or let's see how we can make this a little easier for you because these are two really important things. You need to pursue them both. And if you'd have that voice in your head, you would have been able to move forward. But instead they said, you are not struggling. I mean, that was the answer. You're not struggling, which was totally the wrong answer. And parents everywhere know that that is not the answer you give to your child to just deny what they say they're feeling. But they shifted your universe to make you look at these things as competing options that you couldn't imagine together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fast forward, we all, so many young women face that. It starts there. For you, it started there. For for some, it starts with that tension. And then it grows into the tension of when you are out in the world working and sort of, Mm -hmm. and you want to, I mean, Having a family is not the same as pursuing something that solely is brings you. I mean, certain children certainly children bring you joy, but they're not <laughs> completely analogous. It's not like a dance career is the same as having children. But but this concept of two tough things that you want to figure out how to do together, and the answer is either you're fine. You're not, you don't need to, you're fine. <laughs> or yes. you can only do one. Yes. And I think, yes, I think that's exactly right on. And and it is, is you're getting at what comes up later, right? You know, the best advice that a woman who I worked for when I watched her go through having her first kid, and she said, you're just never going to feel 
perfect at anything again, right? You're never Mm going to feel like you're 100% because you can't give as much as you would if you were only doing career, only doing parenting. And she said, but the sum of those parts, right, is so much greater than if you were just thinking about them as, you know, individual Mm -hmm. things that you could choose from. And it was almost sort of this, you know, fast forward to fix that advice that I'd gotten way back when, (laughs) which was, right, which was not just that you can do it all, but helping you think about how to manage that, which is you can't think about either of them in isolation and try to be a perfect, you know, and a hundred percent at either or. You have to think about them as this composite whole. And I think that's so real mm-hmm. uh, and so mm-hmm. right. And as you were getting at as well, this notion that you have to actually have cracked to be struggling is something right. that we saw, you know, come up time and time again, certainly over these last two years of COVID where, and I'll I'll speak for myself, I generally feel like somebody who is over capacity all the time, right? (laughs) At work (laughs) and at home, but I generally feel okay with it. They're my choices. And I generally feel like I balance them in the way that works for me and for my family. COVID hit. And I didn't want to talk about it for a long time because we were so privileged compared to everyone else, right? Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. were fine. We were we were healthy. My mom has lupus, and you know, was in definition of immunocompromised. We were terrified. She's been healthy, so there was, you know, we have a home, right? Mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. had places. We have a backyard. Or we could be outside. So there was the list of things that we were so privileged about was so long, mm-hmm, and yet. Mm-hmm. It was insane. My husband and I were working double time around the clock because he's in education. He basically had to move a school program online. I was working at Robin Hood Anti-Poverty Fighting Organization, and we were doubling essentially our efforts in response to COVID. We didn't have childcare for eight months with then a one and a half year old and a three and a half year old. And it was really hard, really hard. Mm -hmm. And this idea, and I saw it time and time again when folks from work would lean in, right? Or folks from the outside, it was, oh, wow, you know, you're making this work. And it's like, eh, but can we talk <laughs> about, right, how bad and how hard it is before we crack? Can we start doing mm-hmm. that? Yeah, no, no, that's, that is, that is exactly right. And, and what you have just voiced is shared by so, so, so many people, regardless of whatever their um, circumstances are. I mean, this, this mental wellness concept. Yes crosses all economic strata. It doesn't, I mean, you feel stressed over, over uh, that you are overburdened. It doesn't matter. There is no amount of, you would think that, that resources would make it easier. I mean, in theory, maybe, but it, it, but the feeling of being overwhelmed is strong regardless. And so I, I do hope that what comes out of this, it's, you know, I've seen it talked about in so many different forum from the educational standpoint, what's it doing to children and sort of just generally the state of the world in, in terms of people's difficulty in returning to what we consider normal life. But the focus on how this has impacted us mentally, it really mm-hmm. is something that we have mm-hmm. to, we have to be mindful of, and we really have to be mindful with respect to our kids because that's right. they are, I mean, in, in right. your instance, your little ones kind of didn't know a different world. I mean, the little one <laughs> sort of, I do think the jury's out on how this will impact our kids for the long run. What Mm -hmm. I know as the kids of little ones is that at the time, it completely upended their world in ways that were, you know, surprising. Some ways felt really hard. Some were hilarious. I'll come back Mm -hmm. to that in a minute, right? But fast forward now that it's been two years, that there's so much that they don't remember about before. You know, my son, when when this first hit, he was one and a half. And you remember the word of the year in 2020 was mute, 
right? Because mm-hmm. we all went on Zoom and we had struggles. Mm-hmm. So I look over and here my son is, you know, a few weeks into to, to the pandemic and he's holding up his fake computer, talking to my daughter, holding up her fake computer. And he's saying, what? I can't hear you. You're on mute again. You're on mute again. And he didn't even know how to say the word correctly. He was saying mute, not mute, right? And here comes my daughter. She's on virtual kindergarten. She comes into my computer and she adds my pronouns to my Zoom screen because she knew how to do that. Her school did it. And she figured out on the computer how to do that faster than I did, right? So at the time, it just felt like, oh my goodness, everything is so different. You know, fast forward to now, um, when I was talking with my uh, son about how my husband's going back to his office for the first time in two years, he was shocked. And he said, an office, you know, why do you go to an office? He literally asked, did you used to go to an office because you didn't have a bedroom yet? Because he figured <laughs> the only reason that we didn't work in the bedroom before was because we didn't have the option to. And for him, there is, there really is no memory beforehand. And, mm-hmm. and I think with the little ones, you know, I will say the silver lining of having small children during the pandemic is that with small children, you make their world, right? Their world is you. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we got to create this world for them that looked quite different from what our normal world looked. It was filled with you know, half <laughs> birthday parties that I would never <laughs> celebrate on a normal day, right? We, we got rid of our you know, the table that we usually had um, out in the backyard and replaced it with this monstrous little kiddie pool so that they could just play <laughs> because we didn't take them anywhere, you know, that entire, so all these things, right? And they thought that was normal, but, but we made it for them. We were able to make it magical and we were able to contain, right, in a lot of ways, you know, what was otherwise coming at them. And I think that that is, you know, it is one of the beauties of having the little kids and it's something that you just, you couldn't do if you had kids who were old enough to legitimately know what life should be. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. There's one more area I'd love to focus on with you, drawing upon your background as an educator, and that is how parents can approach um, re-entry into uh, dealing with teachers in in person. And and I've talked for years about uh, both my blog and my podcast about the, ver- the, the great importance of parents being involved in their schools and being interacting with teachers in positive and productive ways. And so I'm wondering if you, based on your experience in the school system, have any thoughts about what you've seen to be good ways that parents can interact with teachers and and what they might think about as they sort of get back into that world. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you asked me this because I think in large part tier- teachers and you know school administrators are the unsung heroes of so much of this. You know so much mm-hmm. of our conversation over the last 2 years is focused on you know what's happening with kids as it should and then on the problems and the struggles of what's happened in schools, but the idea of having to deal with COVID at home and COVID in this profession that is just so directly connected, you know, every minute of every day to students' well-being is just, you know, we talk about the stress, right? Double the stress. Mm-hmm. So I'm so glad mm-hmm. you asked this question. So I think one really important thing is that as we think through what we can keep from, you know, the the, the mm-hmm. COVID world versus what we need to go back to, there are mm-hmm. lots of places where technology, you know, and Zoom and meetings that did never need to be meetings, right? That all of that is real. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. getting back to in-person touch points with teachers and with schools should be top of the list for all of us. Mm -hmm. Because what we have to remember is that the only way that our 
teachers are able to really infuse what we bring to our kids' lives into how they act with our kids is by Mm -hmm. seeing us and seeing Mm -hmm. us interact with them, watching us, being a part of those conversations, hearing how we talk to our kids. And you can't manufacture that when you're not in that same space. You know, Mm -hmm. all the Zoom teacher conferences in the world that your kid's not a part of are never going to create that. And so Mm -hmm. making that top priority, yes, so that you are having those in-person touch points where you're gleaning from teachers, but also so that they can see you and see you interacting with your kid. So important. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. the second piece is that there are so many folks and rightly so who are carrying the stress about, you know, how do we catch up, right? Did my, did my student learn enough, right? Is that something that's going to harm them or that they're going to hold with them for the rest of their academic career? And I think being really honest about that with teachers allows them to then be able to say, sort of, this is what I can do in second grade, right? Or this is what I can do in 11th grade. But mm-hmm. what I'm noticing is that there's a lot of parents who feel like they can't actually put that on the teacher because the problem is too big. And so they're Mm. carrying that around as their issue, but it's manifesting itself in how they talk with teachers about the one test, right? Or the one homework (laughs) assignment. Right, right, All that into that one conversation. And so this is a moment where the honesty around the fears that parents hold about their kids and how much they don't know about how it's gonna manifest itself and what to do about it is right to bring into conversations, not because you can expect one teacher in one year to solve it all or fix it all, but Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. then you're starting the conversation from a shared place and a shared understanding of Mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. you're feeling and what they're feeling. Oh, that's great. That that's great. That's really, really helpful. So parents don't be afraid to talk about your concerns with teachers as, as often as you can. And in as, in as uh, calm and, and um, um, cooperative Yes. Nature Collaborative. Right. right. Collaborative. We're, yes. We're doing right. this right. together. That's exactly. right. Exactly. I mean, That's the only, right. you know, the, the this isn't a real silver lining, but one consequence of this is that we are clear that no one has any answers. I mean, we thought no one has all of the answers and that um, answers can change. Those are two big That's lessons right. of COVID and we can that apply right. them. So we can all be a little less concerned about getting it absolutely right and more concerned right. about figuring out together how we can make it better. I, I have one quick um, sort of side note on this, this, your work as an educator. You've said something that I really have thought a lot about, about how your parenting changed or was mm. very, very influenced by your time as an educator. And can you talk a bit about the, the sort of the depersonalization aspect of it, oh, which I completely. thought was really, really interesting. Yes. And I was actually talking about this with my husband and he brought up a great point because he taught in the classroom for you know over a decade. And mm-hmm. he said, per- it, it is personal, right? At the beginning, And Mm -hmm. that was such a good reminder. When you're a teacher, you're carrying all of the personal weight of are your students successful, et cetera. But then what happens, and this is what I was getting, is that over time, you see so many students that what you start to recognize is that there are things just about human development, about a child's development that have to happen, right? That Mm -hmm. have nothing to do with you. There are so many things that kids are bringing into the classroom, that kids are bringing into the school that have nothing to do with you. And so what you start to recognize is that you can, as the adult, as the educator, respond in ways that are more so about pattern recognition than they are, (laughs) right? About that one Mm -hmm. individual kid. And 
even though with your own kids, you know, I, I always, I think it is so true. Having your kids is like wearing your heart on your sleeve, right? Outside mm-hmm, of your body, mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. what it is. But what I've been able to pull in from having that experience with kids is that there are some choices that it makes sense to make before you've seen whether it is exactly the right one for your kid or not. So let me give you an example. You know, what we thought a lot about when we were um, training teachers was that we want kids to never feel like things are permanent and out of, and and therefore that they can't change them. So you don't want mm-hmm. some kids to feel I'm smart and other kids to feel I'm not smart. You always mm-hmm. want that to feel like something that can change based on mm-hmm. their efforts. So in our house, we never say to our kids, you're smart. That was so smart. We say you got a hardworking brain. You use your hardworking brain, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I've, I'm, I was thinking about that. I've, I've never heard them use the word smart. They congratulate themselves as they do a lot when they do something <laughs> well, right? Mom, did you see this? Right? I use my hardworking brain, right? Mm-hmm, On the mm-hmm. flip side, consequences. We would teach our teachers and you know work with our students around logical consequences. That if you break something you fix it, right? If you hurt someone's feelings, you write an apology letter. Not that if you hurt someone's feelings, right, you necessarily need to go sit in time out, right? There's not necessarily logic there. And mm-hmm, same thing mm-hmm. here. What we've tried to do is make sure that when our kids, you know, have, they make a mistake, right? That the way that we are able to teach them about how to fix is through logical consequences. Now, my daughter last week did tell me that her school has logical consequences and asked me why we don't have them at home, to which I got <laughs> very, I said, wait, 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 wait. I said, you just don't understand. And then spent the next 20 minutes telling her about all the consequences she's had, like, why they were logical. So sometimes that happens too, too. Um, but I do think, you know, it, it really is, it's, it's, it's the, it's the, that you're not working with an N of one or an N of two, or even an N of five, right? In a family mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. has more kids that you're working with an N of hundreds and hundreds. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, so you're mm-hmm. bringing that in as the base for what to do, what not to do with your kids. And that has deeply influenced mm-hmm. a lot of the decisions that we make about the how. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love that. As I said, it stayed with me because even for those of us who certainly haven't had that experience in the classroom, the concept that a teacher is going to teach you know scores and 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 hundreds of children over time, and they're going to see a pattern, and they're going to see that you know somebody at eight is probably going to have this reaction, mm-hmm. and they're not. And once they get past that initial sort of learning, once they get up the learning curve, they know it's not their doing. That's right. And I think if parents can approach some of the developmental stages to sort of if your eleven year old is moody or you know mm-hmm. as as if if you can remember that it's important to try not to take it personally because right. we all, you know, you're right. We're wearing the, our hearts are on that side of us and they're very, they're unshielded by anything. So you jab it and it really hurts. <laughs> and so, and so the temptation, if, if your child is slams a door on you, <laughs> is, is that it sort of becomes the biggest thing and you react mm-hmm. immediately to it. And goodness knows, I am very guilty of just assuring my daughter that the slamming of the door thing could not work because whatever <laughs> we were talking about, all I was hearing was the slamming of the door. <laughs> well, that so, is true too. <laughs> but but I really like the concept of if, if, you, if you think about this kid is not trying to kill me. I mean, this child is not trying right. to hurt me. Sometimes they're doing stuff they can't even control. That's right. And if you think of it as sort of, if you can somehow depersonalize it and put a little bit of distance between right. the action and the intention and your right. reaction, it, it just makes for certainly 
less stress. I mean, right. you know, this, the issue may present itself, at least you right. as an adult. It doesn't mean they're doing out. the right thing, right? Let, right. Me, let me be very clear. It doesn't mean they're like slam the door is right. It doesn't mean they're not completely wrong, right? But what generally it means is it's not about you. And that just puts you in a place where you can do so much of a better job, right? Generally, I'll, you know, we could do another podcast all the time where I did not get this right. Um, but generally then you're, you know, you've got your brain that's working on what to do next as opposed to your, you know, your anger and your energy. Right. God, so helpful. So helpful. Samantha, I, you, I could just keep on. I've got 12 other topics, but I'm going <laughs> to be mindful of your time and close now. And thank you first so much for this conversation that was as great as I knew it would be because you're always so great to talk to. And I'm sure that parents listening so appreciate hearing all of your experiences, your advice. But before we go, I'm going to ask you to quickly play the GCP lightning round, mm. which is a few quick questions. So are you ready? I'm ready. Ready. Okay. What is your favorite poem or saying? So this is a little bit of a mix of poem, saying, song. It is uh, This Little Light of Mine, um, oh. which I think was written in the 1920s and that there's actually a debate about who wrote it, but, you know, of course, became the storied anthem of the civil rights movement and mm -hmm. became a favorite bedtime song uh, oh. for both of my kids. And for me, that is my North Star for parenting, which is this little light, right? Those are my two little lights. And my whole job is about figuring out how to let them shine, help them shine, make sure that they shine, make sure the world lets them shine. Oh, oh that's great. That's great. And what are your two favorite children's books? And they mm. can be a combination of what you read growing up and or what you um, read to your kids. So I'll tell you first on the on the young baby kid, you know, side, mm -hmm. um, there is a book called um, Whose Toes Are Those by Jabaria Sim <laughs> that I read to both my little kids uh, when they were babies. And there's just these pictures of this kid's little brown feet. <laughs> and both of my kids would put their little brown feet up <laughs> on the book. Uh, and it was Aww. just one of those moments that every time, you know, my heart swelled uh, and my, you know, my little eyes started watering. And so that was, that's my favorite um, baby book to read. And then my daughter, when we started doing chapter books, fell in love with uh, Charlotte's Web, which I was in love oh. with as well. We have reached one problem though. She made it, me read it to her three times, which I did. And then I hit it because I'd read it enough. And now she wants to read it again. But the problem is now she can read. And Carol, every time I read it to her, I made up the ending. So I just ah. lied because I just said, I can't tell her about Charlotte dying. <laughs> I was unwilling. In my version, Charlotte just stays at the other farm. She never dies. <laughs> but now Stokely can read. And so I don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to her about death and about how sometimes mama lies. So right. wish me luck on that one. <laughs> yeah, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and so two more quick questions. What mom moment would you love to have a do-over on? So this happens to me daily because it's one of those moments where who you want to be as a parent and just who you are as a person conflict and you don't catch yourself <laughs> fast enough. So what happens to me all the time is I just tell my kids too much, just too much about what I'm thinking or what we're planning or what the different decisions are, et cetera. And they end up completely in you know, this conversation with me to the point where I'm saying, oh, wait, I actually didn't watch your opinion. I'm just telling you what to do, <laughs> but it's completely my fault. And my kids, like they, they pick up on the, my, my daughter knew that I was pregnant with her brother 
before literally we had told anyone I was showing, we ever talked about it with her. I mean, they have that kind of sixth sense about everything already. I could literally mm -hmm. never talk to them and they mm -hmm. probably know enough about what was going on, <laughs> but I just bring my nature into my parenting and it goes awry <laughs> more often than <laughs> And so conversely, we'll end with the, the moment that you nailed it as a mom. Oh. So I feel really proud about a lot of things from these last really hard two years with my kids. Mm -hmm. So two days into my husband and I both working full-time at home, zero childcare. I will never forget. My daughter was just three and a half and I look over and she had gotten them both um, granola bars as snacks and had my son ever sitting next to her one and a half. And she was opening it for him and basically gave him snack. And she just somehow knew, you know, through just a sense of what was happening that she needed to step up, you know, and she needed to help. <laughs> and she did it so beautifully. And I felt mm -hmm. so proud of sort of all the things that had gone into making that happen. You know, fast forward now, we're at a place where, you know, schools have gone mask optional. And because my son can't get vaccinated, we've asked my older daughter, my daughter who's older to keep her mask on. And she's one of only, I think only two kids in her whole class. And she mm. wasn't happy with it, but we had the conversation with her and she just got it. And again, it's just this, you realize that she loves her brother because we've helped them build that relationship. She mm -hmm. understands a lot because we've had real conversations with her at the right times. She takes seriously what we ask her to do. So she's keeping mm -hmm. it on even when no one's making her. Uh, but mostly that she knows that you know part of her job is keeping him safe and keeping others safe and caring about him and caring about others. And there's just a lot in, in watching her handle what is really hard for a six-year-old situation to be in that makes me feel quite proud of what we have instilled in her. Oh, I'm proud of her too. That That's a lot. And, and she's a lot that we could never have imagined that we'd be asking our six-year-olds to do, but that, that that's a right. great, that's a great story. So great answers. I, Thank you so much, Samantha. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you, Carol. It's been great to be here. And thank you for doing this podcast so that all of us who are you know, at the early side of parenting can benefit from it. I'm grateful. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.